Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hi listeners, it's Cara McGugan here. I wanted to share a new extract from my book about the infected blood scandal with you. In the UK, it's called The Poison Line, and in the US, Blood Farm. Both editions are out now. In this extract, we join an ambitious young journalist in 1983 who's discovered a problem. Her reporting will send shockwaves of fear through a boarding school in the English countryside. I hope you find it interesting. Sue Douglas landed her job as medical correspondent at the Mail on Sunday in a roundabout way. She had studied physiology and biochemistry at university in the 1970s, testing scientific hypotheses on animals in the laboratory. She learnt how to catch a rat with one hand scooping under its front paws and clasping two fingers around its head. After university, she had moved to America to work as a management consultant at Anderson Consulting, the precursor to Accenture. Within a year, Sue realised she had chosen the wrong career, and in a move that took her friends and family by surprise, she pivoted into journalism. She returned to Britain to work at a medical magazine, before moving to South Africa to report on the repressive apartheid regime there. In Soweto, she was at a riot when she saw a police officer beat up two children. We've got to stop this, she said to her photographer, panic in her voice. We should intervene. That guy's going to kill them. No, replied the photographer. We just have to take the pictures and tell the story, so the world knows. That difficult moment taught Sue she could change things through her stories, not with her bare hands, by persistently capturing brutal truths in print and on camera. It cemented what she was beginning to understand. This was the career for her. At 26, Sue had that trait so often celebrated in journalists. She was fearless. With some important stories under her belt as a rookie reporter in South Africa, she returned to London to try to make her mark on the fourth estate. She got her first big break within a year at the Mail on Sunday, a new Fleet Street behemoth that had launched in May 1982. The tabloid stood apart from its sister publication, the Daily Mail, with its focus on investigative journalism and more centrist politics than the right-wing daily paper. Sue was a natural hire for the role of medical correspondent. The Mail on Sunday's newsroom was small in those days, but it was full of invigorating noise and bustle. 
reporters would spend their time picking up the phone and calling around sources. News editors would bellow across a dozen heads to an unsuspecting reporter. Frenetic fingers pecked away at typewriters. At the same time every afternoon, the whole building would vibrate as the printing presses started to roll for the daily edition. In the basement, men in shirt sleeves assembled type onto hot metal machines. Sheets of paper were then squeezed through massive rollers at great speed. Soon after came another rumble as lorries arrived to collect the first edition of tomorrow's paper. The headlines were a mixture of 1980s innovation, the one-pound coin and the first CDs, accounts of turbulent social issues and Thatcher's standing ahead of the 1983 general election. The Iron Lady was hoping to tighten her grip on the nation even as unemployment spiralled out of control. There was one story Sue had been following in the medical press that would soon come to dominate the papers. In early 1983, most British newspaper editors, straight men who thought themselves the guardians of moral standards and family values, had been as yet reluctant to give too much space to AIDS. They were against anybody who wasn't like them says Sue. But editors would soon realise, with some cynicism, that they could sell papers by whipping up fear over the gay plague. The tip-off for Sue's first front-page story came in a casual, almost offhand way. It was spring 1983, and she was having a drink with Lorraine Fraser, an old friend and colleague from her days in medical magazines. I've got this interesting story but I can't do anything with it, said Lorraine, who worked for General Practitioner magazine, which was the wrong place to get the attention this story deserved. Lorraine explained that she had recently been at a drugs conference where a doctor had raised concerns about something happening within his ranks. He was a haematologist in Cardiff, working under Bloom, and was worried about the safety of the blood products they were using. Will you take it on? asked Lorraine. Of course, said Sue. Lorraine gave Sue the name of the doctor in the hope that she could get the full story out of him. When Sue contacted him, it wasn't clear if he would want to become a whistleblower. All he had done so far was talk to fellow haematologists in private. So Sue told him she was doing some medical research. I've got a background in physiology and biochemistry, and I'm really interested in the problems you're potentially facing with contaminated sources of blood, she said. The haematologist agreed to speak to her, and she travelled to Cardiff, where he had a small office in one of the laboratories in the hospital's haemophilia centre. The room was lined with books, and had a window looking out over the main building. The doctor gave Sue the impression of being a learned man, who was thoughtful and honest, everything she could have asked for both in a medical professional and in a source. He told her he was concerned for patients but there would be consequences if he were to come forward. Sue earned his trust, speaking as an equal rather than a journalist seeking splashy quotes. The haematologist told her that viruses had got into the British blood supply and patients had been coming down with hepatitis. Then he shared what he was most worried about. He had heard about two patients in Cardiff and London who had contracted AIDS after being given contaminated blood. At the time, there were only 14 official cases of AIDS in Britain, but the true number was thought to be closer to 100, and there had already been five deaths. 
thousands of people with haemophilia in the UK could now be at risk from their treatment. The doctor put Sue in touch with colleagues at other hospitals who he knew would be willing to corroborate his theory. She spoke to more than half a dozen doctors off the record and it became clear to her that some people within the medical community had serious misgivings. Yet those at the top had no formal plan to address the situation. Sue believed public attention, albeit a scary prospect for the doctors, was necessary. She spent a fortnight verifying what the first haematologist had told her. With the story almost ready, she needed to be honest with her original source. She had obtained his trust through false means by not telling him she was a tabloid journalist. At the end of the line in Cardiff, the doctor was worried. He could lose the confidence of his colleagues and possibly his job. It's a really important story, said Sue. I've checked and everything you said is true. He asked Sue not to use his name in the paper and she assured him she would be careful to protect his anonymity. With his consent, she contacted the University Hospital of Wales to ask for a comment on her finding that it was treating a haemophilia patient with AIDS. Bloom refused to confirm or deny the allegation. Confident that she had nailed down the facts, Sue was ready to go to her editor-in-chief, Stuart Stephen. He had resigned from the Daily Express after publishing a world exclusive about Adolf Hitler's deputy, Martin Bormann, that turned out to be a hoax. And he had taken responsibility for a false story regarding a fictitious British Leyland slush fund. But he wasn't scared of backing his reporters, and he was 100% behind Sue. The story went through the newspaper's machine. It was combed through by sub-editors, read by lawyers, placed on the splash at the top of the front page, and given an attention-grabbing headline, Hospitals Using Killer Blood. The piece was ready to go to press. Sue watched the papers fly out of a chute in the bowels of the building. A man caught them and flung them into a waiting lorry. As the bundles piled up with Susan Douglas' medical correspondent printed on the front, she had one of those rare flashes of clarity. This was a big moment in her career. Almost a year to the day after the Mail on Sunday launched, her name was on the front page. Back in Trelaws at break time the next day, Aid was in the television room in his boarding house with his friend Juliet. They poured themselves a glass of squash and picked up a snack. Looking at the room, Aid noticed something out of place. On a small round table, there was a discarded newspaper. He was used to seeing colouring books or the fortnightly Smash Hits magazine in the boarding house, but never newspapers. They were the reserve of the staff room. Children would have to sneak to the local newsagent to access them. At the age of 12, Aid wasn't interested in newspapers. He wanted to be in a pop band, so he would go straight to smash hits when he saw it. But this newspaper was in a place that it shouldn't be. Usually so careful to ensure that nothing was left lying around, the staff had clearly missed this one. Aid picked it up. It was a copy of the Mail on Sunday from that weekend, the 1st of May 1983. Along the top was a banner that said, Exclusive, Virus Imported from US. The headline, written in black, seemed to shout at aid. Hospitals using killer blood. Killer blood, he repeated. Juliet, is that us? 
Oh no, it can't be you, said Juliet. They wouldn't do that to you. Then they read the article together. Blood imported by the NHS from America could be threatening the lives of thousands of British people. A sexually transmitted killer disease, which has struck more than 1,300 Americans, is present in contaminated blood used in transfusions and operations. Experts revealed exclusively to the Mail on Sunday that two men in hospital in London and Cardiff are suspected to be suffering from the disease after routine transfusions for haemophilia. The alarm rang, marking the end of break time. Aid dropped the newspaper and went to his next lesson. He later heard that it was a woman who worked in the cleaning staff who had left the newspaper on the coffee table. She was never seen again at the school. At 4pm, Aid was with another friend by the kitchen. Dave was a tall boy from Sheffield and a few years older than Aid. They each got a slice of fruitcake. Have you seen that thing in the newspaper? said Dave. What's it about? Are we going to get this fucking gay thing? In the final weeks of the summer term, the corridors were abuzz with rumours about the new disease. Between lessons, the pupils with haemophilia would compare notes on the latest things they had heard. When they went to see Dr. Aaron Stam, they would ask him what was going on. But they were too young to fully comprehend the dangers. AIDS was in many ways a distant story for Aid and his classmates, not a pressing everyday fear. One break time, the threatening epidemic might be all they could talk about. Were they in trouble? But by the time lessons came around and they had taken their places in the art room or science lab, they had moved on. In the next break, they might be discussing their nascent love lives or plans for the weekend. They were more preoccupied with the messy and all-consuming business of growing up. For Aid, that meant making sure he got his hands on the latest pop releases as he planned his exit from Trelaws straight to an arena stage. The differences between British and American Factor 8 weren't completely new to the pupils of Trelaws. In the large industrial fridges in the Haemophilia Centre, the Factor 8 bottles were stored in sections according to their origin. Scottish products were on the top shelf of one fridge, with those made by the NHS at Blood Products Laboratory below. Another fridge contained the imported American Factor 8. This is Scottish, this is best, Dr Wassif once said to Aid. If we can get some more of this. Amid the growing disquiet, Aid started to get a sense that the American brands of Factor 8, the ones named on his chronograph watch and other paraphernalia, might be more of a problem. That was seemingly confirmed one day in 1983 when he was waiting with his friend Simon outside Dr. Aronstam's office. The door opened and the doctor came out with two people. Aid noticed their smart suits and cufflinks and realised that it must have been their convertible BMW he had seen parked outside. Dr. Aronstam was escorting them out of the building, a hand on one of their shoulders. Aid heard their American accents. Then Dr. Aronstam said something unexpected. Don't come back here selling your shit to me again. Aid could hear a rare charge of anger in his doctor's voice. The two men left the haemophilia centre and Dr. Aronstam turned to Aid and Simon with a sharp look. Right, boys, who's next? Thank you for listening. 
You can buy the Poison line in hardback at a discounted price from books.telegraph.co.uk. Blood Farm is available in the US wherever you buy your books. Both editions are also available in audiobook and ebook. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.